Today we begin this series in the book of Ephesians. You can open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And the title of our new series is This Is Us, Who We Are and How We Live Because of Christ. And as we begin this series this morning, I want to try and set the table for us and let you in on three reasons why we're spending the next few months, Lord willing, Uh, studying the book of Ephesians, here's the first reason up on the screen for you, uh, to see who God is. That's why we're in the book of Ephesians right now, to see who God is. The book of Ephesians gives us this amazing picture of who God is. In fact, uh, the first couple of verses in the book of Ephesians open up this window for us to help us see the reality of who God is. Look at your Bible, chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 1 tells us right off the top that the author of this letter is the apostle Paul. And he's writing this letter from a Roman prison where he's been chained up because he will not stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, Paul also knows that the very gospel that has now chained him up is actually the gospel that years before had set him free. Before the Lord saved him, Paul, you might remember, was committed to persecuting and executing Christians. The Bible says that he was responsible for ravaging the church until one day the Lord literally stopped him in his tracks and saved him. He had been set free by the will of God, but now he says here in verse 1 that he is an apostle by the will of God. And as a result of that, Paul knows that everything that he has in his life is a result of the grace and the peace that God has given him that he mentions in verse 2, and now that he passes on to the Christians in Ephesus. So see this here. Only God can take someone like Paul, who was so diametrically opposed to the will of God, And God, by his will, completely transforms Paul and uses him, perhaps like no other person in human history, for the spread of the gospel and for the glory of the kingdom of God. Like that's just a sliver of who God is and what God does. And we're going to see this all the way through the book of Ephesians, including this morning in our passage in these verses we're going to look at, just how intentional God is in his actions toward us, that he is a God of purpose. He is a God who has a will, and he accomplishes his will for the praise of his glory. So we're going to see, first of all, who God is. But then notice this, we're also going to see who we are in light of who God is. So we're going to see who God is, but we're also going to see who we are in light of who God is. You can see in verses 1 and 2 that Paul knows that his identity and that of all Christians is grounded first and only in what Christ has done for us. Look again at verse 1. Paul understands that as an apostle, his authority comes not from himself, but from Christ Jesus. He understands that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. In other words, he is a messenger of Christ to proclaim the message of Christ. And again, all of this happens in his life by the will of God. Who Paul is and what Paul does is a result of God's will within his life. And in the second part of verse 1, he says the same is true for every Christian. 
For every Christian in Ephesus, and by extension, for every Christian in this room, for every Christian who has ever lived, notice he says here that we are saints. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been set apart from sin, and you have been set apart to God. Then in verse 1, he calls the believers faithful. Faithfulness to Christ marks the life of a true believer. Like I, I just can't wait to like dive into this and just go through the book of Ephesians and see all that God has for us because we're going to see, I pray, with so much clarity who we truly are because of who God truly is. And uh, just to whet your appetite, check this out, this chart up on the screen for you about who we were before God's intentional act of saving us in Jesus Christ and now who we are because God has saved us in Jesus Christ. This is just a little sample of what we're going to see through our study in the book of Ephesians. Notice chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 tells us that we were dead in our sins. Like we were dead, 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 dead. There's no life, there's no movement, no breath, no nothing. We are absolutely dead with no ability to make ourselves alive again. But that passage also tells us that now, because of God's grace and mercy upon us, we are alive in Christ. We're no longer dead in our sins. We are alive in Jesus Christ. You go forward into chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. We were separated from Christ In other words, there was this great distance, we just sang about it in this song, this great chasm that was between us and God. But now, because of the grace and the mercy of God upon us, we have been brought near to Christ by the blood of Jesus. We've been brought near to him. There's no longer this gap, no longer this separation any longer. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 19, we were strangers and aliens, foreigners to God completely separated from him, but now we are fellow citizens. And actually chapter 2 verse 19 also says that we are members of God's household. You know what it means to be a member of God's household? It means you're part of the family. We are part of the family of God. No longer strangers, no longer aliens, no longer foreigners. We are members of God's household, fellow citizens. Chapter 4 verses 20 to 24 says that we were clothed in our old self, In other words, our life was marked by sin and by our own deceitful desires. But now, because of the grace and mercy of God upon us, we are putting on our new self. Because of Jesus Christ, our life now is marked by holiness and righteousness and a desire to live in obedience to him. Just think, when you become a Christian, when you are saved, you have an entirely new spiritual wardrobe. You are clothed in Christ. We put on the new self. And then chapter 5, verse 8 says that we were darkness. In other words, our lives characterized again by sin, by a separation from God, our our pursuit of sin. But now, he says, we are light in the Lord. We are light in Jesus Christ. And now we purposely pursue a life of holiness and obedience to God. Now, all of that simply to say this. When we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, that changes everything. Changes everything. Like, we are the same person physically, but we are a totally different person spiritually. And because of that, we are a drastically different person behaviorally. 
like what Ephesians is about to open up for us is that you are defined by the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, and that changes everything. And that leads us then to the final reason that we're going through Ephesians. We're going to see who God is, and then we're going to see who we are in light of who God is. But here's the third reason, so that we will grow in a love incorruptible. So that we will grow in a love incorruptible. That's how Paul finishes this letter with those exact words in chapter 6 and verse 24. And our prayer as we go through this series needs to be that this book within God's word will grow in us a pure love for Jesus Christ and a powerful love for one another. Like you'll see through this series that there is a lot of theology and doctrine that is front-loaded into this book. We're going to see it even this morning as well. And the problem is that sometimes people come to the study of theology, the study of doctrine, and, um, and even to the study of God and think that that should be left to like the, the Bible prose, like the people who know a lot about God's word and, and use the big $10 theological words and, and it seems so far away from how I actually live my life and then the study of theology stops there. And, and loved ones, can I just say to you that if that's your understanding of theology, then you're doing it wrong, Okay. Theology, the study of God, a a right understanding of God should always lead us to a deeper love for God and a greater worship of God. Like what we fill our minds with has to translate then to our hearts and then to our hands. It has to change the way that we live. When we come to truly understand who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, that should unmistakably then lead us to a deeper love for him and a greater worship of him. And so in that sense, theology must never be divorced from the practical ways that we live our lives. Because for us as Christians, our entire lives are our response to our understanding of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that was a huge deal for these Christians in Ephesus at this time because they were facing a lot of spiritual opposition. And they needed to know the God for whom they were enduring this opposition. For example, Acts chapter 19, God is doing an extraordinary work. He's doing extraordinary miracles through Paul in Ephesus, in this very place. People are getting healed, and then some unbelieving exorcists come along, and they try to do what Paul's been doing. They try and drive out the evil spirits from these people in the same ways that Paul has. And these unbelieving exorcists then get horrifically overtaken by the evil spirits that they're trying to cast out, and it strikes such fear into the people that the people turn to Christ in confession and repentance. Like, you need to know that Ephesus was a hotbed for that kind of spiritual activity. And perhaps at the root of that was that Ephesus was a pagan city that was largely devoted to the temple of the Greek god Artemis, also known as Diana. She was believed to be the goddess of fertility, and and the people who worshipped her were known to practice things like sorcery and magic arts, which meant then that Ephesus became a magnet for demonic activity and spiritual opposition, which is probably the reason why Paul spends such a significant portion of Ephesians chapter 6, not only talking about spiritual warfare, but he's talking about how Jesus Christ is victorious over Satan and all of his demons and all demonic powers, and that in Christ, we have everything that we need at our disposal to fight and win the spiritual battles of our lives. So Paul writes this letter not just to this church in Ephesus, it's likely that he wrote this 
to a group of churches within this region because he wants them to see how glorious and how amazing God truly is. And he wants them also to be assured of who they are because of who God is. But that knowledge then needs to lead them and it needs to lead us to a greater love, a pure love for Christ and for one another within the church. And we pray that it will do the same for us as we begin this morning. So with all of that in front of us, let's pray. Then we're going to dive into the next few verses in chapter 1. Father, uh, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you for um, the reality that you love us so much and that you love us enough to give us your word, to remind us, to teach us, uh, to fill us with the truth of who you are and all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, I thank you particularly for the opportunity that we have now to begin this series in the book of Ephesians. And, and these things that we have just talked about, Lord, these things that this book, this letter will make so clear to us over the next few months, we pray, would take deep root in our hearts. Lord, that this would not be just an academic, um, intellectual exercise of filling our mind with uh, some truth about doctrine, about theology, but Lord, I pray that it would take deep root in our hearts and it would change the way that we think, that it would change the way that we believe, the way that we live, the way that we, we respond to the situations within our lives. Lord, help us, I pray, to live with an ever-increasing understanding that our identity is rooted first, foremost, and only in Jesus Christ, that everything else will leave us wanting more, and only you, through our Savior, can satisfy us with everything that we need. So Lord, would you teach us now? Spirit of God, would you come? Would you be our teacher? Instruct us in the way that we should go. That we would not simply understand what your word says, but that we would understand it in a way that helps us to rightly apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, follow along in your Bible as I begin reading Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 3 down to verse 6. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now when Paul starts writing this in verse 3 in Greek, this is one long sentence that goes all the way to the very end of verse 14. So it's almost like Paul's taking this really deep breath right now and it's like, and then he just leans into it and it's one big long sentence. So if you're an English teacher and I'm sure a run-on sentence like this right now is just making you cringe in your seat, but understand um, that this was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God so you cannot fail Paul, okay? No red X's on his papers, all right? So there is so much that is packed into this section in this very first part in verses 3 through 14. And so we're going to divide this, Lord willing, into three parts over the next few weeks. Uh, verses 3 through 6 that we just read talk about our identity in the past. Verses 7 through 12 talk about our identity in the present. And then verses 13 and 14 talk about our identity in the future. 
We see here in this section the work of God the Father and the work of God the Son and the work of God the Holy Spirit. And, and so the title of today's message very simply is Identity Past. And, and I want to draw your attention by way of starting to what Paul says in verse 3. He starts by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To bless the name of God means to declare his goodness. It means to praise God for the reality of who he is and all that he has done. And when you think about it, isn't it true that as human beings, we have no problems whatsoever praising things, right? Like we have no problems at all praising the things in our life. The problem for us is that we praise too many things. We praise our bank accounts, we praise our possessions, we praise celebrities, we praise our sports teams, we praise parts of our culture. In the opening words of this letter are urging us now to redirect our praise back to the one place where it truly belongs. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Declare the goodness of God. And Paul begins with that because the rest of this section, like we just said, all the way through to the end of verse 14, is about to unpack how our salvation has come to be. And so here's the main idea of this section. You can jot this down. As followers of Christ, our lives should be pouring out praise to God. As followers of Christ, our lives should be pouring out praise to God. Think for a minute of your life like an avalanche of praise to God. In an avalanche, when the snow starts falling from the top of the mountain, it just gains momentum as it keeps going and going and going. And our lives are to do the very same thing. The more that we learn about God and the more that we understand about what God has done for us and who God is for us, the more then that our hearts should fill up with this love for God and the more the praise of God's goodness gains momentum within our lives. So as followers of Christ, our lives should be pouring out praise to God. And he gives us three reasons here for why this should be happening. In fact, you'll notice here that these are three things that have taken place in the past that should affect our praise in the present. So here's the first thing to notice. Number one, three reasons why our lives should pour out praise to God. Number one, God has generously given us every blessing in Christ. God has generously given us every blessing in Christ. Notice again verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, here it is, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he says in verse 3, Who has blessed us? Notice this, that God has already given these blessings to us. This indicates an action that has taken place in the past. One commentator says that it's not just that these blessings are promised to us, it's that these blessings are already possessed by us. And so now the question becomes, what exactly is it that we possess? What exactly is it that God has already given to us? Well, he says, first of all, that these blessings are in Christ. The only reason that we possess every spiritual blessing is because we are in Christ. Do you understand that? Like if you're not in Christ, then these blessings are not yours. But when you are in Christ, when you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then all of these blessings become yours. This is a key theme that is going to sweep all the way across Ephesians. We are in Christ. In other words, we are united to Christ 
through faith in his saving work on our behalf so that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. His righteousness is our righteousness. His riches are our riches. His resources are our resources. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us, and it belongs to us right now, which is part of the reason why he says that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have, notice, every spiritual blessing, not just some of them, not just the ones that are really great. We have all of them. And by the way, all of them are really great. Okay? We have every spiritual blessing. So what are these spiritual blessings? When, when Paul talks about spiritual blessings here um, and through the book of Ephesians, he's, he's talking about the nature of the blessings, but he's also talking about the source of the blessings. So when he talks about spiritual blessings, it's not just the nature of them. It's not just what they are. He's talking about where they're from. So he's not just talking about what the blessing looks like or what it feels like. He's talking about the one who gives the blessing. In other words, these spiritual blessings in our lives are Holy Spirit blessings. That's the source of the blessing. But the nature of the blessing I mean, he's about to spend the rest of this section down to verse 14 unpacking what these blessings are. And he says that we have been chosen by God and we have been adopted by God and we are holy and blameless before God because of Christ and we have been redeemed because of the shed blood of Christ and our sins have been forgiven and not only do we receive grace, but God has lavished his grace upon us and we have an inheritance that is still to come that is being kept for us by the Holy Spirit who, by the way, has sealed our salvation and lived within us when we are in Christ. The bottom line, the one who lives inside of you is the source of every spiritual blessing in your life. And that matters all the more when you notice the birthplace of the blessing. The birthplace of the blessing, he says, is in the heavenly places. Now that's a phrase that Paul's going to use five times throughout the rest of this book. And in fact, the next couple of times that he uses it in chapter 1 and then early again in chapter 2, he says that, um, that all of those who are in Christ have been seated with him in the heavenly places. So same phrase, same words right there. So think about this just for a second. Where is Christ seated in the heavenly places? Where is he seated? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated in that position of power and authority and rule and dominion over all things. And so as believers in Christ, for those who are in Christ, we have been seated there with him. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. And that is the place where all of these spiritual blessings are coming from, which means then that because that's where our spiritual blessings come from, there is not a single solitary thing within your life or within this universe that is ever going to take any single one of those sweet blessings from you. Not a single one can be taken from you. Those blessings are yours because Christ is yours. They belong to you, which simply means this. When you spend your life 
searching for satisfaction in the things of this world, you are going to come up empty every single time. Do you realize that? Do we truly realize that? Like, just think with me and and follow the train of thought here. Paul starts verse 3 by saying that our lives should be like this avalanche of praise to God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father. Like, we're declaring the goodness and the praise of God. We worship and we praise. And why do we worship things? We worship things because we think on some level they're going to give us some sense of satisfaction within our lives. And more specifically, as Christians, we worship someone We worship God because God is the ultimate source of our satisfaction. And so as soon as we begin searching for that satisfaction anywhere else within our life, we end up coming up short because nothing in this world can satisfy us like God can satisfy us with the blessings that he has already given to us. So when you begin to search for satisfaction in your job, when you begin to search for satisfaction in your grades, or in your appearance, or in what other people think about you, or in your ability as a parent, or whatever it may be, those things will never satisfy you. They will always fall short. But when you live your life on the foundation that if you are in Christ, then you are living your life knowing that you are forgiven, and you are set free, and you are adopted, and you are chosen, and you are alive, and you are the work of God. And when you live your life on the foundation that you are in Christ, then don't you know it? You are standing on the rock that will not move. Like, you are firm in that foundation. See, the reality is your circumstances can change weekly, and they can change daily, and they can even change hourly. But when you live your life on the foundation that you are in Christ, that you are united to him through faith in his finished work on your behalf, then you can live with the confidence that even though your circumstances may change weekly or daily or hourly, that your standing before God has been set eternally. And there is nothing that can take that away from you. There is nothing that can change that. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for his grace toward us. Not only has God generously given us every blessing in Christ, but notice this, he's also done this, number two. God has graciously chosen us before time began. God has graciously chosen us before time began. Verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is mind-blowing. As a follower of Jesus, God specifically chose us to be in relationship with him. This is called the doctrine of election. God choosing us. And... um, I know that the, the doctrine of election uh, causes some distress for some, causes some difficulty for some Christians. And as we talk about this this morning, can we just put a couple of things on the table right away? Um, first of all, can we all agree that the doctrine of election is difficult for us to understand? Can we all agree with that? Um, there, yeah, amen, right? And, and there are parts of this that in our limited human, finite understanding, we, we just 
don't get. We, we just don't understand the fullness of what it means, and, and we never will. But we rest in the assurance that our good and gracious and sovereign God does understand it because it's his plan. And so let's just agree at the very beginning that this is very difficult for us to understand. Can we also agree that the doctrine of election was not put by God into his word? The primary reason it was put into his word is not so that we have something to debate. Can we agree on that too? Um, we, we want to understand it. We should understand it. We should try to understand it. But the primary reason that the doctrine of election is in God's word is not as something for us to debate, but rather something in which for us to delight. That if we understand properly the doctrine of election and what this is saying, as best we can understand it in our limited understanding, that in that context, it's, it's designed to help us, in part, make us realize how small we are and how great God is. And so, Let's approach this with a sense of humility. This is the doctrine of election that Paul talks about here. And here's what we mean when we talk about election. This definition is taken from Wayne Grudem's uh, systematic theology. He says, Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 4. Election is an act of God before creation. So that's what he's saying here. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In which, he says, he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them. In other words, not because they're such a good person. It's not like God looks upon us and says, oh, that guy, I mean, it'd be great if that guy were part of the kingdom. Like, I'm going to save him. It doesn't work that way. Not on account of any foreseen merit in them, not because of our good works, not because of anything that we can do to make ourselves right with God, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And that's what we see Paul describing here in Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, we see God's choosing in so many places through the Bible. Let me point out just a couple of those places for you. You can jot down these references and take a closer look at them later. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, part of what Paul is saying here is not only that God has called us, that he has chosen us, it's also saying that God's choosing of us is not dependent on God's ability to look into the future and see that we would choose him. Okay, So it's not like God looks down upon us and, and says, oh, I see that she's going to choose me 50 years from now, so I'm going to choose her first. It's not like God is playing some cosmic spiritual game with our salvation. Okay, That's, that's not what this is saying. The Bible doesn't teach that. Instead, this is saying that it's out of God's sovereign good pleasure that he chooses us. He chooses us because he delights to do it. 
1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. You can jot that reference down. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul had seen clear evidence in their lives that, that they had been changed, and they had been changed because God chose them to be saved. God performed this work in their lives that brought about this different kind of behavior. Jesus says in John 15, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should bear much fruit. God chooses us. Now, I think it'd be natural at this point for us to to step back and, and maybe for some to think, well, wait a second. I thought when I became a Christian that I chose God. Like I, I thought that was part of how it works. So did God choose me or did I choose God? And the answer to that question is yes. Right? <laughs> like think about it. All the way through the Bible, unbelieving people are commanded to repent. That's that's our response to the holiness of God. It's our response to the good news of the gospel. The Bible recognizes our need to choose Christ even though God has already chosen who will believe. But that choice is possible only because God has already made that choice possible for us. In fact, both of these truths... um, God choosing us and us choosing God. Both of these things are brought together by Jesus in the Gospels. He says this in John 6, verse 37, up on the screen. He says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, All that the Father has given me will come to me. So the Father is chosen who will be saved. But then Jesus finishes that statement and says, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So the Father has chosen who will be saved, but we have a responsibility to come to Christ. Remember how I said, like, there's theology and doctrine just front-loaded at the beginning of this book? Like, we're in verse 4, and here it is, right? So these two things, these two things, God choosing us, us choosing God, they seem to be opposite, and from our perspective, in some sense, they are. And the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility is there. We should acknowledge that it's there, and it's always going to remain. However, the temptation for us will be to sacrifice the truth of one for the sake of trying to explain the other. And we can't do that. Well, doesn't that mean then that if God chooses some to be saved and therefore others not to be saved, that unbelievers never really stood a chance? No, it doesn't mean that. Because whenever people rejected Jesus in unbelief, Jesus squarely put the responsibility for their decision on their shoulders. Well, if God chooses who will be saved, doesn't that mean then that that we are just like puppets playing to the hand of a divine puppeteer? That God's up in heaven and he's just pulling the strings and making us go where he wants us to go and do what he wants us to do? Isn't that what that means? No. It doesn't mean that. Because our choices are based on our desires, and God still sovereignly works even through and even despite our desires to bring about his perfect will. See, loved ones, this this is not meant to be a source of frustration for us. It's not meant for us to go home this afternoon and bang our heads against the wall because we can't figure it out. Right? Like, welcome to the club. Like, we have helmets. Like, we we just can't... We can't figure this out, but, but on the other hand, this is meant, like, don't miss this. This is meant to fill us with wonder. 
This is meant to fill our hearts with worship and love for God. Why? Because God knew our proclivity towards sin, and he still chose us anyway. That sense of wonder just keeps growing when Paul says next that, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You need to understand that that's not just a throwaway phrase. That's just not, that's, that's not hyperbole that Paul's using there. It's not, it's not just like he's trying to make a really, 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 really big point. No, like this is a big deal for at least two reasons. When Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that matters because long before God spoke and everything existed, God had you and he had me in his mind and in his heart, which reinforces the reality that your life and your existence in this universe is not a mistake. Your life is not a a mistake. You have been designed by a designer. Your existence at this time and in this place has great purpose, and that stems from the reality that you have been intentionally created by a great creator, and that alone is enough to give your life extraordinary meaning. Equally important in God's choosing us before the foundation of the world is the reality then that the gospel is not God's cosmic plan B when he saw how horribly wrong things went in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's not as if God was looking down on Eve when she took a bite from the piece of fruit. And then he's like, now what do I do? Didn't see that coming. It's like, that's not the way it works. Like when, when Paul says God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, you need to understand that God chose us knowing that the garden was coming. God chose us knowing that the cross was coming. God chose us knowing that fellowship with him will one day be perfectly restored. So can we say, praise the Lord for the rock-solid assurance that he loves us. That no matter where you go, no matter what you go through, you have the absolute assurance that you are loved by God. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world in Christ. I mean, just think of this. God choosing us from before the foundation of the world means that there is not a single solitary thing that you and I can do to contribute to our salvation. Like whatever it is that you're depending on to make your eternal standing before God right it's not enough. Your ability, your desire to be a good person and try and make yourself right with God, it's not enough. God chooses us in him before the foundation of the world. Why is that such a big deal? Because God determined that it would happen not just before we existed and could do anything about it. He determined that it would happen before the world itself existed. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on and says there's a purpose to all of this. He says at the end of verse 4 that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, so see this. Because of God's choosing, we inherit the holiness and the blamelessness of Christ. We receive the righteousness of Christ. But, but don't miss it here. Like 
Keep in mind, Paul's just pushing this snowball down the mountain, right? And it's just gaining momentum as it keeps going. And, and he says, because God has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and because God has chosen me from before the foundation of the world, that should motivate me then to live a life of holiness and blamelessness before God. Like, all of my life, all of this should well up within me a desire to live my life and to give my life to him because of what he has done for me. We live in the assurance that God loves us with this everlasting love. So God, you're the one who gives my life meaning. What do you want me to do with this situation? What are you going through right now? So God, you're the one who has given purpose to my life. What do you want me to do in this circumstance? God, you're the one who has chosen me out of your good pleasure. How now can I take the gospel to this place to tell other people of your great love for them? Help me, God, to live in the assurance that I am loved by you forever, that you have given me every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, and there is nothing that can take that away from me. Like That alone should start an avalanche of praise within our lives. That should start an avalanche of praise within this church. It's amazing what God has done for us. We praise him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's one more reason that Paul gives here that I want you to see. Why should our lives pour out praise to God? Number three, God has lovingly adopted us to belong to him. God has lovingly adopted us to belong to him. Notice the end of verse four. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So notice this. In love, he predestined us. Again, before there was anything that we could do to earn God's favor. It's the same way that God spoke of the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says to them that he chose them not because they were bigger than any other nation. In fact, they were smaller than every other nation. It's because God loved them. That's why he chose them. It's the same thing here in Ephesians chapter 1, not because of anything we have done, but because of who God is. He has lovingly adopted us. So many families in our church have gone through this process of adoption and, and know what a rigorous process this can be. Uh, the fact is you don't have to adopt kids to know that many kids are adopted out of situations from which they could never rescue themselves. And when we adopted our kids, um, we passed three things onto them. Position, possessions, and tradition. So we passed on to them position. They become full-fledged members of our family. And we pass on to them possessions. Everything that we had became theirs, including one day an inheritance. And then we pass on to them as well traditions. We pass on to them the things that are important to us and things that we want them to have as well. And so we share our faith in Jesus Christ with them. We want that to be theirs as well. But, but the thing is, as an adoptive parent the one thing that you cannot pass on to a child that you adopt is nature. You can't pass on to them your DNA or your genes or the essence of who you are. But for God, that's not a problem. And that's the good news of the gospel. Because when God adopts us into his family, we receive position we become full-fledged members of his family. And when God adopts us, we receive possessions. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us, including one day an inheritance. 
and we receive traditions. We engage in the things that are important to God, like worship and prayer and reading his word and sharing the good news of Jesus. But what makes God different is that when he adopts us, we get his nature. He supernaturally imparts the nature of Christ into us when we are saved. That's why he says that we are God's sons. We are his children in the fullest possible sense of that phrase. And so think about this. When we are adopted into God's family, not only does God do all of this, but then all of a sudden we look around us You look at the people sitting beside you, the people sitting in front of you. You look down your aisle and all these people that are in Christ, all of a sudden, you're part of this bigger spiritual family. You've got brothers and sisters sitting beside you that you never would have had had God not adopted you into his family. That's pretty amazing. And all of it, he says, verse five, is according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He has blessed us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the beloved. See, our salvation for all of the amazing, unbelievable, spectacular, life-changing benefits that it gives to us, our salvation is first and foremost for the glory of God. Don't ever forget that. And specifically, Paul says here, it is for the praise of his glorious grace. Like, do you see this? Do you see what this is saying? Your salvation and my salvation, determined from before the beginning of time, is a gift from God that we have done nothing to deserve and we have done nothing to earn so that all of the attention would be given to the amazing grace of God. So just think for a minute about how this influences the way that we talk about how we come into this relationship with God. Like, like we cannot, I say this in all love, we cannot talk about our salvation with terms like, I've known God for all my life. Like, we can't talk about our salvation by saying things like, well, just said a prayer, walked an aisle, threw a stick in the fire at camp. Like, like I did all of these things and, and all of a sudden I was saved. And, and the tragedy of this is that some people talk about their salvation like they did all the work and God is little more than a footnote. And, and loved ones, hear me. Like, I want to be gracious here, okay? Because I know for some people this is so big and this is so important that we just don't know how else to talk about it. But that's kind of the point. It's part of... I think what he's saying here, we, we have to be able to think about our salvation and to talk about our salvation in a way that makes nothing of us and makes everything of God's grace. Man, I was going my own way and doing my own thing and I wasn't even paying attention to God, didn't even want to know about God, didn't care at all about God. I was destined for an eternity in hell and facing the judgment of a righteous and holy God. But then God started to use the circumstances in my life and and the difficulties that I was going through and he brought these people into my life at just the right time to help me see that he actually loves me and God showed me his grace through those circumstances in ways that I may not have seen at the time but I see it now for sure and he showed me that he sent his only son Jesus to die on a cross in my place for the sins that I have committed against him, a holy and righteous God and that 
If it were not for the free gift of his grace toward me, I would be sentenced to an eternity in hell. But he has invited me to repent of my sins and believe in Jesus to save me from my sins, that he would then adopt me into his family and I would be forever his. Listen, friend, the only reason that I stand here right now is purely because of the grace of God within my life. Like, you want some homework this week? Think through your testimony. Does the story of your salvation talk more about what you have done or what God has done for you? How are you magnifying the grace of God in the story of the way that he has saved you? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us, he has chosen us, and he has adopted us. And may our lives be an avalanche of praise to him.